0: Hello, I'm John Kennedy, and joining me for this episode of Tape Notes are Haim, with producers Ariel Rekshide and Rostam, Batman Gleege, to talk about how they wrote, recorded, and produced the album, Women in Music, Part 3. Haim are an American pop-rock band from Los Angeles, consisting of multi-instrumentalist sisters Danielle Haim on guitar, drums, and lead vocals, Este on guitar and bass, and Alana on guitar and keyboard. Born to musical parents, the girls were encouraged to play instruments from a young age and would often perform charity shows in their family band, Rockenheim. Although forming Heim in 2007, the band only became their full focus in 2012 and saw them release their debut EP Forever later that year. Masterfully combining their influences of Joni Mitchell, The Beatles and Santana with Motown and R&B, the EP landed them deals with Polydor and management with Jay-Z's Rock Nation. In 2013, they released their debut album, Days Are Gone, with producers Ariel Rechshide, James Ford and Ludwig Göransson, all helping develop a more polished, poppier sound. The album reached number one on the UK album charts and earned them a Grammy nomination for Best New Artist. Following an extensive period of touring, including supporting Taylor Swift, Rihanna and Florence and the Machine, the band returned to the studio, releasing their second album, Something to Tell You, in 2017. Their success continued with their latest album, Women in Music Part 3, released in June 2020, reaching number one on the UK album charts and receiving a Grammy nomination for Album of the Year. Co-produced by Danielle, Ariel and Rostam, the record meticulously balances heavy themes with lighter sounds, borrowing from styles ranging from UK garage to classic rock. Ariel Rechshide is an American producer, mixing engineer, multi-instrumentalist and songwriter, whose vast career has seen him work with artists from Vampire Weekend and U2 to Justin Bieber and Beyoncé. Ariel's first venture into the world of music was as a songwriter and performer in ska pop-punk band The Hippos, and subsequently the bassist of indie folk rock group Foreign Born, whom he also produced. His breakthrough as a producer came in 2007 with the Plain White T's ballad Hey There Delilah. The song topped the charts across the world, certifying double platinum in the UK and quadruple platinum in the US. Refusing to be pigeonholed, RL continued working with a diverse range of artists, producing records with psychedelic folk-rock artist Cas McCombs and Dev Hines' R&B project Blood Orange. Having cemented himself as highly versatile, RL's talents have seen him work with some of the most high-profile artists of today, earning Grammy nods for his work with Usher, Vampire Weekend, Adele and Haim. Rostam Glege is a producer, songwriter and musician, best known as a founding member of the band Vampire Weekend. Having formed Vampire Weekend in 2006 while studying at Columbia University, he produced the band's 2008 self-titled debut album, second album Contra, and co-produced their 2013 album Modern Vampires of the City with Ariel Rekshide. As the band's eclectic indie rock style earned fans and acclaim, Rostam began branching out, remixing tracks from artists including Jack Johnson, Cass McCombs and OK Go, as well as writing and producing tracks with Charlie XCX and Carly Rae Jepsen. In 2016, Rostam left Vampire Weekend to pursue his own projects, releasing his debut album Half Light in 2017. Now described as one of the great pop and indie rock producers of his generation, Rostam has helped bring to life the music of countless artists including Frank Ocean, Santi Gold, Maggie Rogers and most recently, Haim. Today, once again due to the Covid lockdown, I'm at home in Morden, South London, Danielle and Ariel join me from Ariel's studio in LA and Rostam joins us from his home studio also in LA. And what better way to start our conversation than by hearing something from the record. This is Los Angeles.
1: Los Angeles Give me a miracle I just want out from this I've done my share of helping With your defense But now I can't dismiss It's killing
0: It is Los Angeles by Heim, the opening song on the new Haim album, Women in Music, Part 3. And it seems highly appropriate to play that because I am linking over to Los Angeles and two different locations in LA to speak to Ariel and Danielle, who are together, and Rostam, who's three blocks away, you say, Rostam, <laughs> so just around the corner. And yes. I'm really excited because I'm really hoping that you're going to open... Uh, pull back the curtains to a musical community that has helped shape the sound of modern America. That's the way I see it. I mean, the productions that have been coming out of this little enclave of yours from L.A. have really shook things up and helped kind of define what we've been listening to over the last kind of 10 years or so. I don't know whether you agree, and I don't know whether I'm hyping it up too much, but I, I, that's oh, the absolutely. way I see it. <laughs> totally <laughs> agree. You hit the nail on the head with that one.
2: <laughs> no,
3: we're all blushing over here. But
0: I like the idea that, you know, you're just a few blocks away from each other, because it seems to me the three of you have been involved in music making of the different projects that you've been creating. And beyond you, is a pool of musicians that you draw on that we can hear on Women in Music Part 3. And I'm intrigued to know how it all works because the impression I have for this new Heim album is that you didn't necessarily say, right, we're going to go in and go and record and we'll have this block of time because it seemed there were tracks coming out over the last few years at different times um, and that it seemed that it's an ongoing thing for your scene that you're just constantly creating, and then some of it ends up as heim, some of it ends up as as something else. I mean, is this my romanticized view of things?
2: You're not wrong. Um
3: yeah, I mean I think there was not a set time like we're gonna make this album with these group of songs that we wrote. You know, there were definitely so many ideas that I had in my little garage band that, you know, I kind of went away for a couple months and started writing with my sisters. And then Rostein would come in, and then we'd write on my little garage band setup. I like to kind of have that simple setup. I just know it. And that's how I've been writing songs. And it's been such a huge vehicle in the way that I am writes songs. Is Every time I try to sit down and play guitar and write a song on guitar, it's very hard for me. So, when I got my first laptop and it came with GarageBand, the idea of being able to kind of have drums and have a bunch of little things that you can tinker around super easily to make kind of a sonic landscape or a vibe was so helpful for me as a songwriter. So yeah, when we were first kind of starting to kind of come up with songs, not for an album, just songs, you know, we've talked about it a lot, but the first song that started this whole process was the song Summer Girl. It was actually a song that I started on my iPhone GarageBand, which was something that I figured out a couple years ago. I was like, oh, there's a GarageBand on my phone too. That's so cool. That's so easy.
2: This episode is sponsored (laughs) by (laughs) 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 GarageBand.
3: But yeah, I ended up taking this little idea that I had and bringing it to Rostam and he immediately it was like a dream, you know. I always find it nerve-wracking to kind of take this little idea that I have and kind of bring it to people that you admire and that you love so much. And, you know, I have this thing that, this, that I think there's something to this. And, you know, I remember taking it to Rostin, and it was like an immediate, like, wow, this is cool, you know. And then we worked on it, and then Ariel came. And, yeah, that was kind of the first thing where it was like, oh, this is like a cool thing of working on music with two of my favorite people And the whole process was just so amazing and so inspiring that I was like, wait, I want to keep doing this. How do I do this? I don't know. And it kind of just, you know. It might be
4: important to mention at the time, it was mid-June that we were finishing Summer Girl and maybe my marketing brain started tingling and I was like, (laughs) you guys have to release this song before the summer ends. And then even before we had finished the song, even before Arielle and Danielle had done the bridge, Paul came in and he started coming up with video ideas. You guys started coming up with like conceptualizing when this video could happen. And I was expecting that he'd be like a few weeks or a few months, but it was like, literally, he was like, we could do it on Sunday. And I think it was a Wednesday at the time. And I think part of the reason that song came out so quickly and part of the reason it has the energy and the spirit that it has, was because we had to finish it. It was already mid-June, and we wanted to get something out in the world. And I was like, you guys have to put this out this summer.
0: Yeah, so that's Paul Thomas Anderson, the director, I presume. Yes. Yeah. So he's part of this community <laughs> he of really creative. He really is. I mean, it, it's clear in the credits, say, when you look at the, the booklet that comes with the album, and you look at who does what, it's kind of like, hang on a minute, they're all doing everything. No, yeah. <laughs> there's the demarcations that we and perceptions that we might have of you because we see you on a stage performing, and they yeah. think, Oh, well, no, Este does this, and Danielle does that. And it's like, Oh, actually, they're all doing lots of different things. And um, well,
2: specifically on the recordings, I think oftentimes we're finding the arrangement as we're making the record. And so Este might play a bass part, but then Rostam might play a bass part, then I might play a bass part, you know, and, and in mm-hmm. the end, Rarely do we take the time to re-record the bass parts all the way through. We end up just stitching them together, and then it ends up being what you're talking about. You know that sort of funny thing where everyone's doing everything, and then live, of course, you're seeing it sort of pared down, and each member on stage is doing as much as they can. You know to make it to make it happen.
4: I, I think yeah, I think an important component of what you're saying is just how talented Danielle is on multiple instruments. And I think as someone who was a little bit of an outsider to the Heim family to come in on this record, I really wanted to bring that out. And I would repeatedly ask Danielle to play guitar solos on songs. (laughs) And one of those songs was Gasoline, which
0: is the first song we're going to look at. And Rostam, that is a, a, a master stroke in leading back in to where we should be. So Summer Girl was where this album started, in effect. That's what you were saying, Danielle. Yeah. And the kind of laid back, relaxed way that that came about meant that you started thinking about songwriting again and recording again without any pressure or idea that you're actually kind of doing that. It just kind of started up again.
3: Totally. And the idea of, you know, I feel like maybe labels or something will try to tell or have tried to tell us like, oh, we need more time or something. But, you know, definitely a mix of Rostam being like, this needs to come out now, being our big cheerleader and just being like, you know what, this is what we want. (laughs) And we have a video and we did everything. So you can't say no, essentially. (laughs) Label. that we made it happen and that was such an inspiring process that we decided let's just keep doing that so we just kind of kept finishing songs and we're like all right this one's done let's put it out all right this one's done let's put it out until you know we kind of felt like this body of work and not even that it was like done because I feel like we were till the last second like messing with it but I feel like the idea of like not sitting on it or not overthinking it was like a huge kind of thesis statement. That's how I thought about it. You know, like it feels good. So let's just move on to the next. And that to me was so inspiring and made me feel very excited during the process of making this album, which in the past, maybe I was not like, I maybe felt like exhausted by the process. This was very forward moving and exciting.
2: Yeah. Having worked with as many artists as I have, as well as Haim on their only releases that they've put out, it's interesting to see change. And just that process really like ignited a flame because it was it was different. It was like, okay, once you've done something twice, what's the point of doing it again? And then when you find that, it ignites a new spirit. And I've seen that with other artists, you know, in different ways. And it was it was really special to see that happen in this group. Yeah. if that makes sense. And now. Okay.
0: On to <laughs> So how did the, Gasoline uh... come about?
2: <laughs>
3: um
0: okay.
4: Well, well, it's interesting that you mentioned Summer Girl as the first in some ways it was yeah, it was the first one that we put out and then Gasoline was one of the last ones that we finished and one of the last ones that we started. I think it goes back to November 2000 19.
2: 19. so Not f- even
3: a year ago. We found
2: the voice memo mm-hmm. exactly in November 2019. Yeah, this record was very fast. It was a very fast process. I mean, soup to nuts. So like a song like Gasoline, Dam and Danielle were amidst recording other stuff.
3: Well, I kind of have, I feel like I, when it comes time to kind of finish an album, I'm always like, there could be more songs. We need more songs. There's something that we're missing. And I kept saying that. To Ross Dam was like, let's just write something. And I don't think, Ross Dam, I don't know, you could, I feel like you were kind of like, no, we got to finish everything that we have on our plate. And I was like, no, let's just, you know, pick up the guitar.
2: Well, it's true. On any given day, you could either be finishing something or starting something <laughs> new. And eventually you're creating a huge pile of things to finish.
4: Well, I think maybe what was at the inception of this song was we were recording with a Telecaster for the steps, and we were sort of passing the Telecaster back and forth and maybe taking a break. And I started to play a little riff on the Telecaster. And then Danielle started to sing. And I think we have a voice memo of that if you want to play it.
3: And I kind of usually just sing whatever's coming to my head first. I don't know what she would do. This is just me kind of like messing around, finding some notes that work over the chords.
2: You'll start to see the song evolve. (laughs) I
3: don't know what I'm doing. Room mics for a second, just the room. Just trying to figure out some words that are sparking something.
0: I love this. This is creation in process. This is
3: literally... That's
1: cool. cool.
3: Which is weird because that's actually, I feel like, the chorus a little bit, but we didn't end up figuring out the chorus until like days later, but we did figure out the verse.
2: Yeah you could hear like the Like right
3: now da, 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 Like a little and bit
2: a, And then hold on I'm going to flip through A couple of these voice memos.
1: Shoot me back They stop Walking around It's
4: time Oh that's cool
3: that's okay.
4: Just, Took you back Shouldn't have
3: Something like that oh, Took you back What oh, was the noise I was too- like Took it. That was like for the seventh house
1: look like that shouldn't have shouldn't <laughs> <There laughs> <it> have <laughs>
4: can kind of tell like as we're just working out the idea we're sort of like editing each other's ideas which is you know it's part of the process of collaborating whether it's on songwriting or production it's like you're passing the idea back and forth and every time it gets a little bit more refined
3: yeah and I
2: feel like what's this one there's two more little snippets Uh,
3: let back, nothing, not bad, not nothing, this is titled keep... Outro on my phone, wait, wait, but wait, I think wait. it oh. kind of ended up becoming the chorus. I get sad. Mm. This is writing the second verse. You know, I get bad. sad. What? No, I like I get sad. <laughs> <laughs> Aww. You know, I get
1: sad, you know, I get sad.
4: And, Danielle, are we allowed to say who... Like the concert experience that inspired the song a bit? Are we? I don't know. <laughs> well, I wasn't there, but but I remember that you had just seen Alex G perform at the Fonda. Yeah,
3: I just went to go see Alex G. I was like so excited. I, I love his al- all of his albums. But there was one part where he said something like, hey, and then there was like all this delay. It was part of a song, and I didn't know the song actually. He did something kind of like an hey, eh," hey, and then there was like just a delay on, like I guess the front of house, or I don't know if maybe he was controlling it on his end, but just on this one part, it'd be like "eh, eh, eh," and then he'd start singing, and there wasn't delay. And I was like, "That's so cool!" Like, I mean, it feels like such an obvious. I feel like a lot of people do that live, but I had never done that, just like triggering a, a delay for one thing. So I is had, that
2: on the song? Huh? Is there that? No,
3: it was my that was my idea when I remember like thinking about like, oh, well, first of all, I feel like when you're writing a song, you want the first thing to like really catch you. And I feel like in my own weird mind, I was like, okay, Rostam is like sick of me wanting to write the song like I have to come up with something really good on like the first thing. And I was like, I remember being like, I took you back. And I was like, that's like a cool way to start a song. And then, of course, I feel like I tried actually a really, like, so long for that first line to be more impactful vocally. I kept being like, "Rostin it has to be like, I took you back. Like, really, you know. <laughs> and I think, and, 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 then- and Rostin was like, dude, just sing it. Sing it. Like, you know. More quiet, quiet, quiet. I feel like <laughs> I feel like that's a thing actually that Ross and Ariel are I feel like it's always like my drumming needs to be more quiet and my vocals need to be sung quiet.
4: No, that's not <laughs> I disagree. I want you to play hard. I like it light.
2: Yeah. I like okay, I, I like so, I like when she plays super quiet and I turn the gain up really, really high. So it's just like right on the edge and it gives it that super intimate sound. It took me back. But you shouldn't end. To me, it's, I don't know. It's
4: like a... But yeah. I think what, what we ended up finding with the Alex G inspiration was that in the album version of that song that Danielle really liked, it was like a totally different arrangement. So it was the fact that she had seen this live performance. I think you had a video of it on your phone and you were like, can we make it like this? And of course, Gasoline, you know, it's its own song. It's not lifting anything other than just like maybe the spirit or the energy, uh, was an inspiration. And that iPhone video recording she took of that performance that she showed me, I was like, I kind of see what you're saying, but (laughs) like, and then I actually, I think at one point I did it for you. I put the delay on the vocal just at the top and you were like, yeah, that doesn't sound really good. (laughs) So...
3: But yeah, so that was like in this at Vox, we were kind of messing around while we were recording other songs. And so we went back, I think Rostam to your house. And I think we were both like, what was that thing that we started the other day? I feel like there was something in that and then we ended up pretty much finishing the song at your house, Rostam, right? And that's what that piano
4: I think we had the verse and the chorus and then maybe it was a second day that we got together and did the bridge. Yeah. It was maybe a week later or something. I don't remember. I do remember you coming in and saying, let's make it very sexual. <laughs> and <laughs> I said, sure, Daniel, whatever you, want. <laughs> whatever you want to do. Let's." But I remember you came in and you're like, let's make this bridge really sexual. People don't write enough about sex.
1: We're watching the sunrise from the kitchen counter. When you're laying between my legs, it doesn't matter. You say you want to go slower, but I want to go
3: faster. Faster and faster. That was again Ross instructing me to sing very quietly. <laughs>
0: And where was that recorded? Is that just? That still... was
3: recorded that at Ross's Right behind
4: me. Yeah, right, right. Ross, In my yeah.
2: studio that I'm sitting in at this. You can tell by the notation. It's really funny. I feel like Alana's voice has a different notation, which implies that it maybe wasn't recorded at.
3: No, she was there.
2: At his house?
4: Yeah, Wait, Alana was there. are you going to play the harmonies?
3: When you're lying
1: between my legs, it doesn't matter. You say you want to go slower, but I want to go faster.
4: That's SD in your left. Mm -hmm. And so if you you play those harmonies again, you'll hear Alana on the right side, SD on the left side, and Danielle up the centre.
1: You say you want to go slower, but I want to go faster. Faster and faster.
0: So that is all recorded in the room that you're in, Rostam, right now. Um, Mm -hmm. And those are the, the recordings that end up on the record. So we've moved on from demo and voice memo. We're now, you know, hanging out but recording the thing that ends up being the thing.
3: Yeah, that bridge. The demo was, was
0: done in the expensive commercial <laughs> studio and then
2: the final recording was done at Rostan's house in my house in my personal studio.
1: <laughs> We're watching the sunrise nice from the kitchen counts. When you're lying between my legs, it doesn't matter. You
2: say you wanna go slower, but I wanna go faster. You kind of, when you listen to that much of it, you do get a sense of like the intimacy and like of the sort of not that my studio or Rostam Studio is like a shabby home studio by any stretch of imagination, but it's not like a ambient kind of live room where then suddenly we, we went and did drums.
0: Well, I guess that sounds pretty dry, too. What are the options presented to you? So obviously you've each got recording setups to varying degrees. Where we basically you...
2: have three setups. We have I have a home studio that we're talking to you from right now, which is mm-hmm. just downstairs, and it's pretty elaborate, but it is what it is. It's a bit more of like a kind of keyboard experimental space you know so i can
0: see some guitars and some keyboards behind you and yeah like uh, yeah
2: microphones a lot of stuff and then i also have this space not far from here that is a little bit more of your traditional kind of live setup space you know it's there's a control room with glass and then there's this sort of old school kind of sun record style room very simple
4: and that space also has tape so that's the right. drums that you just heard were recorded to tape and that's a big part of why they sound the way they sound
2: yeah i have like an old um scully 16 track two inch machine which for the nerds out there it's got mike pre's on the actual machine it's it's a real kind of it transports you a bit the technology is truly older you know it's the same kind of machine would have found at maybe Muscle Shoal Studio, or uh, even Electric Lady in the Jimi Hendrix era. And, yeah. and so on this song, what ended up being on the record, I think the only part that was really recorded there was the drums. On some other songs, even the piano on this one, as I see the our, our kind of mix prep session, it's got an address. <laughs> And piano, which is Ross Dam's address. I won't say the address. Because <laughs> you
4: can see the piano behind. Yeah. Because
2: right. we did we we did do like while we were doing those drums, there was another piano. It's like a first attempt at the piano that I did. And um for whatever reason we just were tinkering at a high speed and what ends up on here is what ends up on here. To and degree, I so. kinda
3: wanna note that like, you know drums are probably the most important thing when it comes to Hiem songs drums are an instrument that our dad like our dad taught each sister how to play drums the second we could hold up our heads so you know my dad's a drummer he loved teaching us and i find it i mean even though we actually didn't write this song from drums a lot of higham songs are written from a drum pattern first so I feel very spoiled because I feel like every time I work with Ross Dam and Ariel, the drum sounds are impeccable.
2: Yeah.
3: <laughs> it's so fun working on drums with them because a lot of times I feel like in the past with other people, or it's just the hardest thing to get a good drum sound, one that's inspiring and one that sounds, you know, interesting. Well, I think and, that's
2: part of what brought Rostam and I together. Just We, we have similar interests as well as dissimilar interests, but we have a lot of similar interests in drum sounds and guitar sounds and just doing things a little bit different, you know, than other people. And we, we brought a lot of those ideas when we worked together on Modern Vampires of the City for Vampire Weekend, and we did a lot of that, you know, put our heads together on this one as well.
4: I think in some ways, like, what defines producers, whether you have, like, a super deep engineering knowledge of drums or your knowledge is more of, like, physical and tactile from how you play the drums, I think what defines all producers is just this obsession and this desire to translate what it feels like when a groove really hits you in the chest. I think that's something that all of us producers share and the three producers on this project, what we really could connect on was wanting to translate that feeling and that groove. And knowing when the groove was right, and if that meant re-recording the drums, we had to do that, and we wouldn't shy away from that.
2: Absolutely. I think was. on
4: this song though, we got it right. We did. The first time. We did. Agree. We did.
2: And it, and it kind of sounds like almost like a, like an old school drum loop, but it's not. It's played all the way through, and it does start to evolve towards the end.
0: And that's Danielle playing all the all the parts. Well, yes. on on drums. She's on drums, drums, yes, yeah, 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 yeah that's yeah, what yeah. I meant, yeah. Um, I'm intrigued by the tape option. So, you know, you record the drums to two-inch tape. Uh-huh. Is the tape ever an issue? I I became
2: very, 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 very deeply... Obsessed with tape early on in my. I think that's
3: something that we all share.
2: Being obsessed with tape? Yeah.
3: Or recording on the tape.
2: Okay, sorry. No, no,
3: no. I'm just saying (laughs) it's something that we've all loved. I mean, at the same time, I can say, which is what I also love about working with these two amazing people, is that we're also not snobby about if it is tape or not. Obviously, or I don't Mm -hmm. know, just like we can record shit on our iPhone and be like, that sounded good. Like, that's something that I also love. I don't. We're not snobby about it, but well, or at least I'm not snobby about I it. But.
2: I came into working with tape very deeply on a record called Catacombs by Casman Combs, and the real purpose for it was, in contrast to the, his previous album, was to narrow down the options. We did the whole thing on a one-inch eight-track machine, which was the machine I still have and used for years and years and years and years, Ampex one-inch eight-track 440. And the concept with that record was to do it on eight-tracks, And to keep it on tape, which meant what it ended up meaning was not so much that we were doing like a retro sounding record. That was never our desire. We weren't sure what we were trying to do, but we were channeling a method, you know, where everyone had to perform and they had to get it right. It wasn't like computer recording that we were so used to that we, we came up in where you can just do one little bit and loop it. And that's, you know, don't get me wrong. A ton of what I do is like that, but this was a nice break from that and it was a completely different exercise and to really pick what mics were meaningful and not just kind of do this insane never-ending press conference of microphones on yeah. everything you know it just like really limit it. and what i learned from that record was just what i was saying is like the process and and i came to value that from an iPhone as well. You know, sometimes you're just somewhere and the space is right and the moment is right. And you use your iPhone memos, you know, and you get something specific from that, not just the sonic quality of it, but just the moment.
3: The performance. And, you know,
2: so many years, a decade later, all these little bits of, oh, yeah, like I know what it sounds like also when it goes to tape, but it's not only about the sound. You know, it is about the sound, but it's also just, I don't know, it's just something different, you know, when you have this many channels on the machine to like record the drums, you learn how to do it with less mics, you know, but.
4: I think maybe for people who don't understand how magnetic tape works, it's literally powder between thin pieces of film. And that powder is changing shape based on how you, you know, input a microphone into it. And, you know, when you think about how computers capture audio There's no powder involved. There's no like magnetic movement involved. There's just zeros and ones. It's a totally different thing. In some ways, it's like the equivalent of like a painting versus an inkjet printer. They both have certain intrinsic qualities, but like the tape one is literally like pushing around these tiny flecks of a mineral.
0: Mm. Do you run a backup as well? I mean, do you record, do you have the computer <laughs> well, so, and, and, running as well? And so
2: that's that's part of it. So after doing Catacombs, I, it was such a stressful, crazy process of I literally did the whole record on tape. It stayed on tape. If I wanted to record over something, it was like if we wanted to punch something in, it was like mm. super difficult and super destructive, you know? And everything was very, very stressful. And so while, while it was very rewarding and I love that album, and the next time around, I developed some of my own techniques for how to my workflow you know and so what i actually do feel free to edit all this nerdy shit out later is um this is crucial i molt things and it gets really nerdy so the microphone essentially goes to a little console that i have in my studio and from there it gets molted which means it gets split it's like a phenomenon i can't even explain why that doesn't degrade the quality but it doesn't so what happens is after the console A set of, say, eight tracks goes to Pro Tools, and then at the same time, it's going to the tape machine. Not from the computer, straight from the mic pre, so fully analog at that point. Then from the tape machine, off of the playback head, so it's recorded and then playing back, it's going back into Pro Tools. So what you have is your eight digital tracks recording, and just behind it, because of the physical tape head and record gap, it's coming back on tape. And so... I don't think about it much because I'm very familiar with it. But for a long time, I would do comparisons: listen to the digital, listen to the tape, which mm. one sounds better. And you know, and I've I've learned what I what I like better. And s- sometimes there are surprises, but for the most part, I really like the way drums sound off of tape. And to take nerdiness a step further, what I recently gotten into is this Scully tape machine, which actually has Mike Prees on it. So instead of molting after that first mic pre and the same mic pre sound going to digital and going to tape, I actually started molting at the microphone. So a microphone goes into a mult, gets split. It's a different kind of molt now. It's powered because it needs to power the microphone. And one side of it goes to my Neve desk, which is very nice. And then the other side goes straight into the mic pre on the Scully tape machine, which is a completely different sound. So different that when you're listening to the same drum performance from one source and then the other source, it almost sounds like a different performance, let alone a different recording. And um, like I said, part of this whole thing is an embedded process that's created a mic technique and whatever else and a sense of urgency when you're actually tracking it. But like just a combination of, of method, sonics, and also just the inspiration of like happy accidents and weird things that happen when you're playing around with funky old gear just kind of keeps you inspired when you're doing this day-to-day-to-day-to-day-to-day, you know, like trying things a little bit more counterintuitively or something. Mm. Like, why would you go through all this trouble when you could just record it directly into the computer? I mean, it's a fair question.
0: (laughs) But (laughs) But I'd like... um, I mean, the interesting thing here with this track with Gasoline, so you recorded the drum parts... Straight to tape, but you've got these vocals that were recorded at Rostam's place, um which sound exquisite. And then you married the two together, presumably, or, or yeah, did you create a separate performance? play the two in at the you know at the right well, time or how did you do I, it? I mean, like, maybe w- would it be possible to build this track up kind of and describe and explain the elements?
2: yeah, I mean, it, it probably would have been something along the lines of this to be honest, like maybe not exactly, but for purpose of what you're talking about it probably would have been
3: what guitar is that Rostam? is that straight from Vox?
2: no nah
4: that's my Strat it was recorded here in my studio
2: no amplifier direct in
4: that is directed. So yeah, you were talking about recording something directly into a computer mm. and that guitar is recorded directly into a computer.
2: And then you add a vocal to it.
4: You took me back, But you
1: shouldn't end.
2: and then take it to it's to Burbank. To, to my tracking room and then Mess and then it's also a
3: vocal that was very early
2: like oh yeah like probably, like probably first, the, first right day. after we wrote it yeah
1: up like and I then, I
2: then here's the piano which was redone back. at Rothdam's house chorus vocals are on different tracks let me find them here they are
1: doubled. Alana. Back to me. And then here
2: comes Esty.
1: Go on and kick off your boots
3: in the seat. And then here comes Esty
2: harmonizing over Danielle. I guess,
3: that was that more expressive you know, guess, first line.
2: Oh that that's interesting. I get set is that when they recorded this second verse, it was distorted and I loved it. And I think we can all fall into this thing where you're like, when you feel the responsibility of of making this record, some or a record, sometimes-
3: Professional? Yeah, well, sometimes you just <laughs> wanna
2: make sure you did it right, you know? And I remember Rostam and Danielle re-recording this line a few times, trying to get it cleaner, but we ended up using the distorted take, which is sounds like-
1: I get sad!
2: You can see the waveform just fully flattens out on sad. <laughs> Doesn't even sound that crazy now, it's funny at the time. Well,
3: that's how I imagined.
4: I feel like it Well Tom Elmhurst, who mixed the song, when he sent his first mix, he was like, There's some distortion on the second verse. You'll see what I mean. <laughs> and I think maybe we did go back and re record a couple words and send them to Tom when we revised the mix. But it maybe crossed that We line. went
2: back though. It like lost something. Can't remember. We did. We did. It was like I get set. You know I get. Yeah, I mean also we're not listening to the mixed version. We're listening to the raw tracks. Yeah. Tom Elmers really did his thing.
0: Yeah. I mean, that bit with Get Set, does that relate to that Alex G inspiration that you had?
3: Yeah, that's how I originally saw the first line. It took me back Was with mm-hmm. that kind of same expressiveness. Is that a word? That's what I first imagined, I think. We went there with the second verse. I was like, all right, it should be, I get sad. And we stuck with it.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds great. I mean, you know. (laughs) Thank you. This is brilliant hearing all these parts put together. Especially, it's interesting, isn't it? They're all recorded in in such different ways. Each individual part recorded in so many different ways and in different places. But they all end up being part of the same song.
2: Well, that aspect of it it reminds me a little bit of like, A big inspiration for me from a production standpoint coming up was 90s hip hop and sampling. And I always loved the idea how like drums from one source matched with a sample from a different source and then like a really clean vocal on top of it just created this completely new thing, you know? And I think that openness to that based based on that kind of those genres of music really opened the doors for us to make, you know, quote unquote rock music in a different way than a lot of people make rock music. Yeah,
4: I think from my perspective as a producer, like I remember being a teenager and reading about Bjork's method and how Bjork would get Matmos to program drums and then she would go and record a choir in Iceland and she would put it all together and it was all sourced from these different places and I felt like as... I entered the stage of being a professional producer around 22. I was really inspired by that. Like, oh, we can record the drums in this room and then record the vocals in this apartment. And then we'll go to our friends to do the guitars. And then we'll go find a piano in a lounge at our old college and we'll record the piano in that lounge. And I always loved recordings that were put together like that and that you can hear all these different spaces in one record. You know, when people talk about how the band cut it live all in the room together, I'm like, that's (laughs) great, but does it sound good? Does it feel textured? And I think that Ariel's work on Catacombs is an exception. You know, it's an incredible sounding record that was recorded all together. But like, to me, it's more about like, what does it make you feel when you hear it? To me, like the traveling between the different rooms and putting that all together in one place when i hear those recordings that's when i see all these different colors in my mind and that's what i always am chasing after as a producer i think is is making people like see that kind of those blends of colors and not there's this fear that i have with recordings that it all sounds the same color that's what i'm always like scared of i want it to always have like multiple colors on the canvas so to speak
3: and i yeah. think you know As Chaim, you know, we did that thing that, Rostin you're describing, I mean, really horribly. But when we were first making demos, when we were just kind of playing to three people, you know, in L.A. for five years, kind of opening up for our friends, you know, we would go away and try to make a demo. And we saw these videos of, you know, Petty. Granted, he was like at Sound City and this huge studio. But we had, you know, saw these bands that we loved all in the same room playing and you know, for five years we would save up our, all of our money and every, I think, two years or we'd go into kind of a studio in the valley and use the house engineer and we had no idea about how to record anything and always come back with this thing, you know, we're like, oh, it sounded cool in the room and I'd come back and I'd listen to it and I'd be like, why does this sound so flat and like really bad and I didn't understand, we didn't understand why is it coming back like this? So, you know, once we kind of figured out a little bit more on how to record and when we were coming up with our first DP, like we kind of learned more and more. And then when it came time to kind of record our first album,
2: I think. And, I And probably what you learned, at least based on hearing those recordings, is that there is no like right way to do things you can do it any which way you know you, can, you can play the, the snare drum could be a sample played on a keyboard and the kick in hi-hat or totally. live and then early
3: high am bass, i didn't, we you know, didn't there's know. just no
2: right way to do things sure. and, and i think that like i don't think that recordings are necessarily flat or lose flavor just because everyone's recording in the same room we all love records by the band or Bob Dylan or or, well, or the Beatles say. or whatever it is. But the point is just that there is no right way and you There's have to, no like, right way. You have to follow your intuition as a producer as you're hearing something and go, That's not right. Let's try this. Okay, that worked, but it would be better in this key. Okay, let's just pitch it up. Does that sound bad? I mean, that's against the rules to use a digital pitch shifter and pitch everything up so the singer can sing it in a better key. Like you might be scared of that from like some sort of textbook, but does it actually sound bad? Wait, does it actually sound better? You know, suddenly you're like, maybe we should pitch shift the drums anyway. Even well, I if-
3: ended up doing that basically after trying to record demos a lot in the room to go back to GarageBand. That's when I think we kind of understood, oh, okay, like let's mess with the drum sound, let's whatever, just in the tiny scope of what GarageBand can do. But it totally was an eye opener for producing our stuff and coming out with something that sounded better than like in a, you know, some studio. And and when it came time to try to figure out who we're going to work with on our first album, I mean, obviously, I think my two dream producers are the people that are sitting here with me right now. And I recognized what Rostam was saying about the colors. Like the second I heard Vampire Weekend, I was like, wait, how does he get... You know, I really, I feel like when you listen to the music that Rostam produces and REL, you really hear those colors, and Sonically was so exciting to me as a listener and as a fan. I, I want to I work with those people, you know, the sounds that they use are so wide, and yeah, so I feel like I got really lucky.
0: Yeah, dreams can come true, <laughs> Dreams no. can
3: come true. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that's the colors analogy, Rostam, is so spot on for me. When I listen to your music, I do feel like there's so many textures, so many different things that are kind of ear candy. And I've tried to do that on all of the Haim albums. And but I think with this one, it's a really unique blend of things that we were exploring. And I feel like the drums specifically just sound really cool on this album and very, yeah, I just think they sound really cool.
0: Yeah. yeah and they I certainly feel like do. I think... Um Yeah, Yeah, sorry. Yeah, I think maybe what we could do is hear a little blast of the master of gasoline, and then we can hear those colors uh, blending beautifully together, and then we can come back out of the master of gasoline and move on as Rostam was saying to the next song.
1: Doesn't matter.
0: You may have heard us talk about Tape It before, and if you haven't, then let me fill you in as they are the sponsor of today's episode with a fantastic offer for you. Tape It is an iPhone recording app made by musicians for musicians. Many of our guests on Take Notes, music industry friends and listeners rely on voice notes to record their early ideas. People like the Lumineers, Ezra Collective and Fred again have all shared recordings with us made on voice notes. But what you wouldn't have heard are the long pauses where they're searching for those recordings. We wouldn't want to put you through that. As you can understand, organizing and finding the right notes, let alone a specific part, can be a nightmare. Tape It solves all of that voice memo chaos with intuitive labeling features, including automatic instrument detection, markers and collaborative mixtapes, meaning you can share band practices, organize set lists and brainstorm ideas with co-writers and band members. Plus, you can record straight from your lock screen and attach text and photo notes to each recording. Did you do it honestly tape it is fantastic all of the take notes team members are complete converts and excitingly some of our guests have started to use it as well so i really would recommend checking it out it's interesting you know the drum sound is so important to you all and danielle mentioned that often you write songs with the drums leading but not in that instance i think that was a that's an exception
3: that's an exception Yes, that drum beat came after we wrote the song.
0: And Danielle, you, you said all your father taught all three of you the drums. That was, you know, as soon as you could kind of hold the sticks. So yep. did you all reach the same level of ability <laughs> or, or skill? Um,
3: we can all play. Yeah. Um, my dad, I think, saw my little sister, at, at, like he was obsessed with Sheila E and he kind of tasked Alana with the timbales and was like, this is going to be your drum. <laughs> these are going to be your drums. And Alana really excelled at timbales. And SD and played. And I think I just love it so much. It's actually the instrument that I love playing the most. And I was super lucky that we always had a drum set set up in our living room. And my dad encouraged playing, even though it drove my mom insane. But, you know, I'd come home and there was a stereo right next to, like this kind of 90s stereo with these big, Speakers, and I would just put in a CD and I would blast the speakers and then play drums to that. And it was so fun for me. I actually think it really helped me with my feel because I had to listen to the stereo that wasn't actually that loud and play along to it. And that's kind of how I've learned how to play drums. And I never really had formal lessons, but it's also so fun, you know, as a producer to figure out the arrangement with different drums. Mm. And I feel like I really like a simple drum beat. I'm not like a huge fill person. I don't really have a lot of fills. If I do have a fill, it's usually on the snare. And I'm also not like a huge cymbal person. Um, But anyway, yeah, yeah, I kind of took that role. Would
0: you be channeling those individual styles of those drummers that you'd have been listening to back at that time? No, So be it Ringo or...
3: (laughs) Well, Rostam says I can be Ringo if I want. I don't know. Is that true?
4: I think you can play like Ringo. We've definitely and done. you can also play.
3: We've done the wallet trick a bunch.
4: You can play like John Bonham. <laughs> but but yeah, I think what's cool about the way Danielle plays is it's extremely human. And it has personality, which not every drummer has. So like, you know, I love to, you know, ask her to come play on something like a Claro song, for example, and the fact that she'll just show up and it'll only take twenty minutes, and all of a sudden you've got some magic, it's pretty incredible. So on this album, we always knew that whatever state a song was in, once Danielle played drums on it, it would elevate it, so bring it to life. but three a m was one that that you and Tommy started, right?
3: Yeah, well, and my sisters, we all wrote this to a drum beat that I programmed on my iPad, on this app called Gadget Two. So this is and the next song we're
0: going to look at, 3 a.m.
3: This is the next song, 3 a.m. We wrote it to the this drum pattern that I just like put in really quickly, and I think I did pitch down the drums in GarageBand. Do we have the? Original? I have
2: the drums that we ended up recording, which, again, in that same room. This one has a. BX-10 Spring Reverb on it, a real one, and it sounds This is the basic groove of the song. Like Daniel says, pretty simple, hi-hat, kick, side stick.
3: No fills.
2: (laughs) No real fills.
3: Yeah, there's a fill just on the snare. I actually think that's something interesting, Rostam, that you do a lot is you try trying to switch up the drum patterns a lot in <laughs> songs, which was I always admired because I don't go there. But it does help with the energy of songs right. a lot of the time. But yeah. But,
4: but so, Danielle, why don't you why don't you say a little bit about the process of starting this one? Because this was one of the ones that I came to much later in the process. And I think you'd gotten pretty far before.
3: Yeah, so we, my sisters and I and our keyboardist Tommy wrote this song to that drum beat. And the chorus was the first thing that kind of came. And it was, I think I was thinking, as we were writing it, like for melody, I was thinking of like, what would be a cool guitar line? And I was like, I just thought that that could be like a cool guitar line. And then I thought, maybe that's a good hook or something. I don't know. Then there was a completely different verse chord progression and we came up with something that we kind of liked but we kind of like we always felt like it wasn't right and i remember taking the song to rostam and being like i really like the chorus the verse something is like not working about it and you know the chords just changed to a whole different progression and we worked on a version rostam and i with (laughs) <laughs> for a long time we we, had kept, few we, 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 a we rewrote the verse like a billion times to this one chord progression maybe we changed the chord progression a little bit but it was always that the, the verse was different than the chorus chords and it always slowed it down i don't know something about this verse that we were trying to write kept slowing it down <laughs> this is also a, a song that was totally different up until like three weeks before the, it was kind of due and we just were like, something is wrong with a song. I don't, can't put a finger on it. It's just not good enough. And it was almost going to not be on the album. And Ariel had the idea of, like, why are the chords changing in each part? Like, just have the same chords and let's write something over that. And right when we did that, it was like the energy switched, like, tremendously. And all of a sudden it felt like the song clicked.
2: Yeah, this song was funny because it started out as a demo between Danielle, her sisters, and Tommy. It had some really interesting things. Tommy's like a phenomenal keyboard player that comes up with voicings that I definitely don't understand. And even Rostam, in some cases, was trying to figure out what chords it was. And we were just, you know. I did because I wanted we,
4: to play the chords on acoustic guitar. And I do. <laughs> and those are on the record, but they're pretty shabby. <laughs> but, My acoustic guitar playing is... is. Uh, You know, these are hard chords to play on a steel string acoustic guitar in my defense. (laughs) Which
2: sounded really cool. So the basic gist, like when we started an early session of it was basically me, like I do usually saying, I think... This, you know, from a drum machine should go to Danielle's playing because I just really yeah. So the I, first I really thing we did it. was
3: replay the drums, so it wasn't the Gadget Two drums. Which honestly, I loved the way that the Gadget Two drums sounded. That's but, okay.
2: Here we go. And then but I redid. And them. then I got SD to play this bass line. <laughs> I think I was using the Moog. Filter pedal. If you saw my selection of envelope filter pedals, you would really think I have a problem. (laughs) So every single flavor is just a little different. So this was the basic gist. And then in verse two, I just wanted to change it up a little bit. And so I added this. Back to Danielle.
0: So those bits you've added, where, what are they from? That's the kind of thing we don't talk about. <laughs>
2: Trade secrets. That's for the crate diggers. But you can hear. I mean, it's based, and now now it's snare. just evolved onto Chorus 2. Mm-hmm. It's on a snare. It's all going through that BX10 spring reverb to give it some space. Otherwise, it would sound pretty cool, but just wanted a little bit more ambiance. Was that the
3: piccolo snare?
2: Yes. And so I just loved that bass groove, so I just wanted it to just ride the whole time. It, it's hard to imagine it was changing over and over and over again. Then... We had our friend Benji come over and just jam a little bit.
3: Oh yeah, he came up with some good.
2: Yeah, uh, kind of just guided him and also using some interesting pedals. I can't remember exactly. Not that, hold on.
4: That is Benji actually, but th- that's the one I, I cut it up and I I put a low pass filter on it. that has been chopped up in Pro Tools to sound like a keyboard, but it actually is guitar. It's just very edited, almost like a DJ Shadow attitude towards guitars. Like,
2: But there's some of his other things where like these kinds of little lines, like. And then so.
3: the breakdown that I insisted on having
2: so that's basically Essie on bass Benji playing guitar and Danielle on drums so far and then let's throw Tommy into the mix And then here's me on my one-trick pony, Selena. Give it that West Coast sound.
0: I mean, at this point, did you have words or...? Yeah, so it always had the chorus. Right.
4: And then... Maybe you could solo the chorus, Ariane, play the, the vocals. Let's do
2: it. The chorus is an ensemble of vocals, so
0: so would those words have would they have been written to the original drum beat that you had in um, gadget 2 Yes. yes.
3: This was part of the song that was always there. That The reason why I thought there was something cool about the song yeah, was because kept... of that chorus.
2: Exactly, exactly. And then the verses changed several times over. Bridges were added, deleted, mm-hmm. whatever. But what ended up happening is we simplified the song. In the end, we just took stuff away. But, um... Da-da-da!
3: I came up with that on the guitar, and then we put on yep. the bells, yeah.
2: And then here comes a harpsichord. Can you solo that
3: harpsichord? I love
4: that. And there's
2: a Selena on top of it,
4: brings it somewhere else. Can you could you just solo the harpsichord and acoustic cuz I think they do a cool thing together. Yep. The harpsichord is Tommy's playing, but I used a sound that's kind of a 60s keyboard called a Chamberlain. It's a keyboard where each key you press down triggers a piece of tape. So each key is a sampler basically that plays back a note on a harpsichord that somebody painstakingly recorded. And that's why that harpsichord sounds old and tapey because it's literally each note is from a tape machine.
0: So it kind of conjures up bands like The Left Bank or or something like that.
2: Yep.
3: Another huge inspiration to this album was The Love Below by Outkast. Right. I feel like... His use of acoustic guitar and just guitars in general was super inspiring to me. Should we move on to talk about
4: vegan? <laughs> yeah. N- Let's Can we get talk there. about vegan. Hey, uh <laughs>
2: What's
4: up? That's our friend.
2: That's our friend known as vegan.
3: Yeah, is, I think.
4: Is Vegan famous in England? Uh, I think people know him. V E G Y N. He hosts uh, the Blonded Radio Show and he produced uh, Nights by Frank Ocean and many other songs. Right.
2: But we just like his voice. Yeah.
4: <laughs> and his dad co wrote the song Torn? Natalie and Bruglia Torn.
2: Wow. Well, that was. So the, we were trying to channel big big some hit. of that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: hey. Uh, what's up? <laughs> Just call in to see if you're still up, but <laughs> did you script him or did you did you give him pointers? No.
3: At, so basically we Again, this song was kind of on the cutting room floor and I was trying to figure out ways to make it more interesting and make it better. And I remember thinking like, why not maybe it'd be funny if it's about a phone call, like if it starts out with like a with a phone call and at first Ross Dam tried. <laughs> 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 and honestly, it worked the best until we got Joe because we asked we auditioned a bunch of people we did before yeah there were a lot of people we asked a lot of our friends
2: Sophia's boyfriend you know. we
3: kind of cut Rostam because we decided we wanted it to, to be someone British but Rostam you, you had the best compared Listen, to I a, want
4: what's best for the record Rostam's always. was
3: Rostam's was very sweet it was like hey
4: mine was tender
3: it was tender it was like My, hey if you want to mine... hang out that's cool
4: it was like very tender Vegans is a little more predatory. (laughs) No, I don't want to say predatory. (laughs) Vegans is a little. He's a little bit more suave and kind of, you know, different. He he
3: had game. He had game and nonchalant. Yeah, and
2: and then to just take it a step further into ridiculousness. Whenever I have a chance to tap into some of my older tools, my um, CDJs and my Pioneer eight hundred mixer. I take that opportunity. So there's this whole level to the song that is kind of like this, which is all me just programming, sampling, and performing it from these essentially turntables. And so.
0: Hey, uh, what's up? Just calling to see if you're still up, but straight to voicemail. Uh,
1: yeah, no biggie. Um, if you're up or whatever, just hit, just hit me up. Like, um, um,
0: So, Arrow, are you saying that you put that onto a CD and put it into a CDJ and just kind of played around with it as if you were kind of scratch or, or you know?
2: Yeah, if I'm being honest, I just put it on a USB stick. But, you know, <laughs> yeah, same, yeah, same, same concept, same, same, um, same thing. Then, I love to like right before a songs done, kind of experiment with uh just like some dubbing out, using some of those effects from my brief DJ days in the early 2000s, late 90s, I liked, I loved the effects on those mixers. So I'm constantly filtering and phasing, and like performing little textures just to. This is all just like a live, random, last take.
1: What are you doing?
2: There's also... So these are actually drums that I programmed, but it gives it a different quality when you then play it back through. I use my 808, just all this stuff, Mm. classic stuff, but actually playing it backwards on the CDJ.
3: We really leaned into the phone call so, idea, I think. And I think I always like when there's some sort of humor in, in music. I think to me it's endearing and I've always wanted to have that in my music and I don't think we've ever really had that, so it was a cool thing to do. Yeah.
0: And and the baseline, you know, if part of the idea of the song is about a three AM booty call or, or something, the the baseline really emphasizes that kind of slinky Aspect of that idea,
2: no definitely as he's a funky bass mm. player. you can play that one way and you can play that this way
0: It almost sounds like there needs to be a stretched out ambient trip hop version of this for twenty minutes or something say no more <laughs> yeah I'll get it.
4: what's that that's called like a 10 inch yeah. mix or 12
2: inch <laughs> yeah. mix yeah it's fun to listen to it like this
0: three days later you come out of the studio yeah, <laughs> having got lost in this sound world So, the third song we were going to look at is The Steps. How did this one come about? Well,
4: it started on a day when me, Danielle, and Ariel were at Ariel's spot, his home spot. And we tried at a bunch of different ideas that day. And then I think Ariel went upstairs to do something, and Danielle was like, let's try and write something real fast. Like, <laughs>
3: That's like Danielle my- always wants to. Write- <laughs> She's like, let's I'm- start something real fast. I'm greedy.
2: Well, it's also a good method of not trying to force something that's not, I give her full credit for that, something that's not like just coming together. We tried a bunch of ideas, and there were some good ones, but it's like, yeah, they're recorded, and let's keep trying until something happens. And I remember actually hearing it through, because this is not like a proper studio, it's just downstairs at the house. I heard it through the floor, and I was like, what is that?
3: Yeah, and I think we were actually like we were all going to go to dinner. Maybe Ariel was like going to get ready, and that's when I was like, "Rustin, let's just come on, like quickly, let's grab a guitar, let's 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 do something, let's do something. Come on, before we get to go to dinner, like let's just let's just put something down." So we plugged in the guitar. I can't remember. Was it just from the guitar? There was no. There was like some drum. I pulled
4: up a loop that the pattern was like boom. And I think that pattern made it into the bridge of the song, but it's not in the song until the bridge.
2: It was just like in the, a folder of like a hundred best breakbeats of all time <laughs> on my desktop, I think. I was in, found it and flipped it.
3: Found it, flipped it. And then he started playing And then playing he picked this... up
2: actually Cass McCombs' uh, Jazzmaster guitar that was just at my house directly into the computer.
3: Yeah. And then we basically just wrote the verse and the chorus like melody in like three minutes. I don't even, it was like super quick. It was one of like the first things that I sang. I remember I was like, I like to write like in a microphone that's like kind of loud so I can like hear myself. Almost like you're in a rehearsal studio kind of writing or something. Yeah. And um, yeah, I just remember that first thing was like, it was kind of bratty. and
4: I think from an early stage, we, the first 10 minutes of working on this recording, we had, the drums, the guitar riff, your lead vocal, and then I think also your harmony, which was like yeah. a big part of that song. I wish
2: I had the original. It's somewhere on the computer, the original, those four elements, drum loop, guitar, lead vocal, and this like whacked out, like tuned high harmony that just seemed impossible to sing that we later, later forced Al- Alana. Later, Alana would sing. Yeah.
3: But yeah, so that happened. And then honestly, we didn't think about it. We're like, all right, we did it. We wrote like this thing. Let's go to dinner. <laughs> <laughs> and truly forgot about it. You know, I feel like as a songwriter, sometimes you really, I mean, at least me, like I, I have to record everything because then I can come back to it and be like, hey, there was something in there because in the moment, I feel like I talk myself out of liking something or talk myself out. Of, yeah, I don't know. Maybe that wasn't great or.
2: It's always easier to like something that you have nothing to do with, and I remember being obsessed with this little bit that Rostam and Danielle had done. I loved it, and I would listen to it, and then I remember I'd you know flip onto the radio, and then I'd listen to it again, and I'd be like, "Wait, this is, something's wrong. It's not the right tempo. It doesn't feel good. It's like it's one of my favorite things I've ever heard. I don't know. It was such a short little bit, but it was already there, you know? And um, I pretty much made Rostam and Danielle both worried about me and hate me because I hijacked this song for a long time, just driving myself crazy. Yeah, we went from like
3: forgetting about the demo to then rediscovering it, and my sister's being like, wait, and Ariel being like, wait, that's, that's really good. Something about this is good, and then being excited about it, and then working on it, I think, for like five days straight. Being like, okay, whatever's happening in this demo, we can't beat it. Then Ariel <laughs> taking it for how many months? Oh,
2: it was a long time. But I mean, I worked on it for, for many months at a time. I just knew it wasn't right. And,
3: and then us, I, don't, I, I mean, I can speak for myself. Like, I got so sick of the song and I actually <laughs> fucking hated the song.
0: <laughs> so, how possible is it, Ariel, to you think you could find any of those elements that you were talking about? Like, you talked about the four elements that recorded really, really quickly in like 10, 15 minutes. Um, I mean, if you can't find them, um, could you illustrate them them. by um, the bits that ended up on the song?
4: Well, Ariel, maybe just if you dig up that version that you sent but Mute Buddy's Piano that got added later.
2: I have a version, but it's already, if you can imagine, like three months in or something. (laughs) You know, I don't know where... This
3: song took on so many different shapes and I've truly... Wrote it off. By the time like the tempo slowed down, to I don't even know what the BPM was, but it was very slow. I wrote this song off as like, all right. We're. But what I was
2: going to say is that I think I wasn't happy with it, despite what Ross Dam and Danielle might tell you, but I was really, really struggling to try and find it. And I guess I had completely explored slowing it down and discovering that that was definitely not going to work, which I take credit for. Forcing Rostam at gunpoint essentially to only have one choice but to speed it up and that's where we ended up.
0: Right.
3: Rostam saved the song. Well what ended up happening is that I had this
4: loop that I made in 2013 it's just a drum part that I concocted in Ableton and I dropped it in the song and all of a sudden the song felt like it could be faster and it felt like we had been scratching at the surface of this kind of punk Rolling Stones concept. And then all of a sudden, this drum part that I dropped in added that, not added, but it took that punk Rolling Stones idea to the next level and it pushed it a little further. And I remember being like, well, what if it went faster? And Ariel saying something like, but, you know, it can do that now because now it has a different drum part altogether and I've never heard it with a different drum part. So yes, let's make it faster. So we were kind of like we all had this demo itis
2: for the original of that drums. pattern. yeah, exactly. I think it was like the pattern of drums. I just didn't feel like that pattern could be faster without being cheesy. But real quick, can you play the punk drums? Well uh, hold on tell me you, Here comes a version that was a little while in, but what I can say about it is it's the original drum pattern of the song and whether it's the exact tempo or not, I can't tell you, but it's the tempo I know that I did not like. So that's the original guitar, and that maintained all the way to the
0: final version. Yeah, so that's the guitar that you came up with when Ariel popped upstairs to, or downstairs to, to get ready to go out. And this was... This was the drum pattern.
2: Boom, ka kaboom.
0: So, Ariel, your thought was, I need to slow this down somehow to make this work. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because now, of course, it sounds like
2: molasses to me. But <laughs> yes. I just knew that it wasn't right. Yeah. And when I sped it up, it started to sound kind of like Las Vegas, almost like, yeah, a little trip-hoppy, like, funky, like, Ocean's Elevens. you know, right. not good. So <laughs> I just naturally wanted to make it just, like, heavier, almost like a Sheryl Crow song or something. I mean, which is maybe, like, a kind of random reference point but were
3: it. you in the room when rostam first played the punk drums
2: i feel like i heard those punk drums before i feel like, like there was a the moment years. where i was
3: at rostam's we were working on another song and maybe rostam you're like what's going on with the steps i was like i give up on that song do not even mention it it's so fucking slow i hate it and then Dam, i think you were like what if it's something like this and he played this loop and i literally was like eureka
2: and that and that yes that's
3: exactly what this
2: needs that loop is this
3: my head exploded i was like oh my gosh that that yes that
4: yeah ariel had heard that before because i was trying to make a song out of it for seven (laughs) years or something (laughs)
2: But, but in this original demo, while I still have it here like queued up, it's maybe worth seeing like what actually wound up in the song. And there is like, you know, so. And I think I was just so drawn to the songwriting. I really lo- love the song. I hate it. The version of which is why it drove me crazy and made me want to work on it for months. But, like. It's
3: also like me playing sloppy ass drums on one side and then. We have. Having the loop on the other side. We have fake horns and.
2: But here comes a little bit of a palette that we refined, but. And again, that is Danielle playing twice. It's like double drums.
0: And who's doing that whistling? Me. I mean this yeah. is I was just trying to find and something. Is there a kind of sax in there? What's that? What else is in there? Yeah, it's just like a
2: keyboard saxophone. Yeah. I was also thinking that the song needed
0: a bridge and we we're trying to find... I don't know. It, this is a random version along the way. But then if you oh put some of those elements with the punk drums, as you've been describing them, then it kind of changes the whole feel. Is there any way of doing that? Or do you have a version that illustrates Well, yeah. Them?
2: I mean... Well, that's the version of that the song. That, that, that's what it is. I mean, so 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 as you hear... More it like, or less. Let's talk about it. So here's the original guitar part, same guitar part. Maybe it ran it through a cassette tape or something mm. since then, but with Ross Amstram's part at 808. That's an early acoustic guitar that's probably somewhere in there.
1: So baby, when I'm near you,
4: well, no, actually, Ariel, that acoustic guitar is the 12 string. That was added the same day Danielle added that kind of Southern rock riff.
2: But there was, I guess what I mean is acoustic guitar was added earlier on.
4: That was a kind of a breakthrough Jay. So after we added the punk drums, then adding those kind of block chords and adding Danielle's Keith Richards style Southern rock riff, that kind of took it to another place again.
2: Right.
3: I remember I, there was a version where when I played the punk drums and then you recorded on your iPhone?
4: Yeah. Oh God, I'm starting to have trauma flashbacks yeah yeah we went through a lot of
3: (laughs) I thought that sounded cool and it definitely made us believe in the punk drum part more I mean also me trying to figure out what because I ended up playing that part on drums and trying to understand what is even going on in that loop is very hard I tried the best I could at the time but it's a very weird pattern do you have my interpretation of what
2: There's two things happening here. This is Danielle playing what I label as trash drums. And that's her playing a snare on top of it just to accentuate it because the one mic without that snare added on just was a lot of hi-hat and not a lot of backbeat, so. And then there's like a kick drum overdub.
3: A lot of over. This is a bit of like,
2: this is one pattern.
3: But I would have never come up with this part on my own. It's, no. f- it's a very weird drum part. And, and Arya,
4: actually, can you bring in the Danielle stuff and then put the punk drums on top of it? Uh-huh. I think that's ultimately what's in the song.
2: There's more. This is like essentially what you're hearing... There's some more stuff kind of supporting it and very, very, very subtly lifting it, which is this whole drum part right here. It's another version of the punk drums, but it's got more kick in it. Just so then add that to, and then add the little 808 right there. And then in our quest for trying to figure out how bass is gonna work, I tried all kinds of things and there was this SH-101 that seemed to make the uh, final bit that kind of goes with the kick drum. It's just subtly outlining the uh, root notes because anything less subtle than that we found to be like
3: It just made the song too cheesy. So the,
2: the bass guitar is harmonizing with it. And then to try and make the song just a little bit nastier, I added this other bass synth. I just crushed it through fuzz pedals. And then to take it a step further into nastiness, we added Cass McCombs. And I remember, the mixer thinking that was cassette guitar, because it just sounded so messed up, but it was actually cast guitar. <laughs> <laughs> so the combination of cast and this bass synth just sounds like that, and it just gives it a little bit of an energy underneath it all. And then back to Rostam's guitars that were playing on it. There's an acoustic here. Oh yeah, and then there's also, God, there's all these little elements, isn't there? There's an organ, a farfisa, and another organ, I can't remember which one it is. We couldn't beat the
3: riff guitar from when the, the first day that we wrote it.
4: Right. I'll add it all on. so that to me, that's like the kinks twelve string guitar totally. that comes in, like picture book. yep,
3: we love the kinks in this house. I feel like we all kind of grew up on the kinks, or like, I got super into them in high school.
2: You'll hear like it'll break down to the original loop and then Danielle will come in. I was just adding some bass harmonies here and there.
3: Also you will only hear Phil's on a snare.
0: It's interesting hearing all these different elements broken down like this because it's almost like you've got different eras of rock music coming together to create this. So it it has a kind of classic feel, but it has a classic feel from various different eras, be it 70s and 80s, and there's a kind of new wave thing, there's a punk thing, and and, and then there's the kinks thing. (laughs) Every track is meticulously
4: labeled punk drums. Trash kit, (laughs) garage kit, whatever, 808.
2: Yeah, and I think we're doing that. I mean, it's not fully accidental because I think something that we're all terrified of is sounding too referential or too retro or anything like that. Mm -hmm. We always want to be pushing forward. So I think taking our influences but mashing them up into something that at least we've never heard before, you know, I'm sure.
3: That to me is so
2: exciting.
0: Yeah. Well, it, it's, it kind of and, goes in with that colors thing that um, Rostam was talking about in a way, you know, because it's another way of, of bringing different colors into the recording, you know, because they kind of totally. conjure up all these different things.
2: Yeah, this, this was, was kind of like a David like Bowie, Bowie we, moment.
4: Yeah, it, Space Oddity maybe was a little bit of an inspiration there.
3: No, I was going to say that I feel like, you know, we, even though we're, you know, different ages from different... Well, Ariel's from the... I guess you're not from the Valley. I'm from the Valley, but Ariel's from L.A. But um, I do feel like every time we reference something, we pretty much always know what each of us are talking about. I feel like we kind of have this similar musical encyclopedia of things that we've heard or are inspired by or that have moved us in the past or...
2: I found drums from one of the early, early versions in the final bit. It's here, it's in the bridge. Check it out. Here it comes. But it's worth noting that this part of the song is also about five BPM slower than the rest of the song. So this beat works. Because then the song breaks down and it sort of gradually sweeps back into the faster tempo. Mm. It's like without really noticing it, it's kind of the way it would be, I guess, in a live performance. It's slowly kicking up and now it's it's faster. Here comes one of those snare rolls.
3: That's it.
0: Yeah. Amazing. And and in another interesting thing is that ultimately what holds it all together is the guitar that you came up with in those first ten minutes and the vocals that you came up with in those first ten minutes. Absolutely. When you were just 100%. kind of doing something to fill the time before you went out.
3: Well, I think that's what makes beating a demo so hard is when the randomly the things that you first come up with just fit so well together it's hard to beat it yeah I think.
2: yeah that's definitely the rostam and danielle special is what's holding this whole song together and the huge huge challenge and it, and it's not just with this song it's been many songs i've found at least over my career is preserving the magic and like whatever the uh charm of the original spurt was but giving it you know reaching its potential without losing what was actually good about it because so often and i'm guilty of it too you listen back to the and i'm sure people would feel this way about hearing old fleetwood mac demos or or beatles demos or whatever also where you hear like the demo you're like whoa that was better than the final version and so that's kind of the worst fear sometimes is that you're in an effort to try to finish something or fit some sort of idea of what is acceptable that you actually go backwards in terms of magic, you know? And I think that that's what was really difficult about this song. But I do think that when we listen back to it, all of our effort was worth it, actually. I think this one came out really good. Oh,
0: totally. And Would it be good to hear the finished version or to hear a burst of it so we get the full picture, having heard all those different elements that form it?
2: Well,
4: I think one thing about this song is, that original demo that Danielle and I started, it was probably March of last year. And then I know when Ariel worked on it with all three Heim sisters, that was April. And then we, you know, we all kind of took turns working on this song. And I think the songwriting didn't change until September. So like there was about a five-month break. I went to Massachusetts for three weeks. Ariel and Danielle went to Italy. We came back in August and then we kept banging our heads. And I think the last thing that came in songwriting wise was the bridge, which happened in September. So maybe let's start it from the bridge and play to the end of the song.
2: I like that. Kind of got a a piece of everything. Some of the old drums, the new drums, the, the riff, the newest part of writing, and then the original chorus.
1: I can't understand why you don't understand me baby
4: every day. Yeah, so the production of the song was definitely a struggle. Yes. Yeah. but sometimes I think songwriting and production are kind of tied together and they kind of go hand in hand and sometimes if you're not, if you feel like you can't make a song work production wise,
2: there's something wrong
4: with can the writing. Maybe because the songwriting needs more.
0: How do you get from really hating something, Danielle, uh, to having been turned around and somehow starting to like it?
3: Well, I loved it when we first wrote it, and for those like first initial five days of working on it, I remember like literally doing like kicks in the air when the when the chorus came, like a it felt like it really like hit you in the face. And I love that uh, with the chorus specifically. And, you know, with the high note, you don't understand me. Like just seemed so cool to me. Yeah. And then I find a lot of my favorite songs are kind of the problem child. This was definitely a problem child on this album. On our first album, our song, The Wire, was a huge problem child. We re recorded it a billion times. And I hated it for a minute and I've come around and, you know, I love that song. And yeah, with this, it really did take a toll on, I think, all of us. But um, it really was that kind of new energy of these drums that turned the whole thing around and all of a sudden it clicked and it worked. And yeah, I love the way that the song turned out.
0: Yeah, fantastic. And then it realized its full potential. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, that's so good. Um, we're going to let you go in just a moment, but there are a couple of regular questions we'd like to ask everybody who comes on Tape Notes. Um, one is a piece of kit. Do you have a favourite piece of kit or do you have a piece of kit that you cannot work without?
4: I would say on this album, for me, I think I kind of discovered the Fender Stratocaster and Danielle and I were at Vox together and that's where the song fucked up but true fubt started and the fender stratocaster that they had at the studio was from 1963 and that's what you hear on the record and i unfortunately was completely smitten with it and when you know we we'd only book like 3 to 5 days at vox at a time and then we'd come back and take everything we recorded and and work on it further and I just couldn't part with that 1963 Fender Stratocaster sound. And I had to get one. So I, okay. they cost about as much as a car, unfortunately. <laughs> so I bought one. And on the steps that we just heard, in the middle of the bridge, Danielle's playing these incredible guitar riffs. And it was directly a function of me handing her the Fender Strat and being like, play, right now, play. <laughs> which was all- And there's just something that happens with certain instruments that they just inspire and they definitely inspired me and it definitely inspired Danielle too. What were you going to say? No,
3: I was going to say, which is cool because a Strat, I mean, for me, I've always been a little hesitant to play a Strat, I think since it's just an, so almost like too iconic, sounding, looking, everything about it I just didn't see myself as kind of a strat player. I don't know I don't know why, but I just never really did and and I also never played one from 1963. You know, I never really played like an old strat, but playing that one was so inspiring and sounded amazing. You know, it sounds like an old strat. It sounds like the ones that you hear on all the all the records, you know, from the 60s and You know, not like a 90s Strat or something. It has such a specific sound to it. And that was big for me because I was like, I'm not a Strat person. No, I don't like the way that Strat sounds. But it was huge on this album. And yeah, Fucked Up But True, it sounds like a Strat. I love the way that one sounds. And I'm trying to think of what was my thing. You know what, I'm going to go with the piccolo snare. That's what I'm going to go with. Because I think that snare pops up a lot on this album. and it's usually pretty ringy and it's also a sound that if you would have asked me 15 years ago, like, are you going to have this sound on your album? I'd probably be like, no, absolutely not. But it's a sound that I, in the last couple of years kind of fell in love with when I would hear it on something that maybe that might sound like it from the nineties. I, I really started to like create, I'm like, Oh, that's such a cool sound. Actually. I love that fucking sound. And I feel like it really, to me, uh, gave, this album, some oomph, and I love it.
0: Excellent. Do you have any piece of equipment, Ariel, that you particularly favor or can't work without?
2: Amongst all the really fun stuff in my arsenal, like these tape machines and old drum kits with low kind of ringy kick drums and high pitch ringy snare drums and guitars and Pioneer, DJM 800s and everything else and synthesizers. The thing that I feel like at the end of the day makes the workflow very possible and a bit more modern than each one of its components is all the universal audio plugins and hardware that we use that make everything so easy, like these Apollos that are so portable that you can take it anywhere and record stuff with it and all the plugins that kind of give you a taste of of some of that vintage stuff, like the 1176s, but then also how far you can tweak the tape emulators or the reverbs and the modulations and kind of take stuff that gives it a bit of like a old school sound, but somehow just by nature of it being very contemporary makes it sound a bit more contemporary. Yeah. I mean, I think Dam got the uh, the winner with the 60 Strat and Danielle took the drum, so I'll just take the plugins.
0: Yeah, I don't know, but you combine the three and uh, the magic can be captured <laughs> and created. So, you know, it's a good thing. And that's why the, it took the three minds to create Women in Music Part 3 in some ways. Um, now, there's one more question, which uh, is a more general one. It's in terms of advice. Do you have any advice that you've ever been given that you hold dear and that you would pass on to other people? Or do you have any advice that you've Gained by the experiences you've had doing what you do?
4: I could answer, I could give the first answer. In this program, you've seen us break down like the elements that went into the production, the elements that went into a recording and you've heard them isolated. When I was about... 19 or 20, I started to become obsessed with making my own versions of recording. So I try to go through and I try to program the drum part exactly as it was in a Prince song. I try to program the synth part. I try to arrange the vocals and record the vocals with all the harmonies that Prince did. And that was huge for me. And I, I think that if you love recording and you want to pursue a career, making music recording music or making your own music i think a great way to do that is to try to make your own versions of songs and see how close you can get it and when i was really young i used to have a woodwind teacher and i always wanted to play whatever i wanted and he would always say like don't play whatever you want yet like master exactly what's on the page then you can do your own thing. And I think the same thing happens or can happen with recording. You start by just making your own versions of songs and figuring out just how many elements it takes to make a recording that's exciting. Then it'll be easy to go to the next stage, which is to make your own recordings that are totally original.
0: Mm. Yeah. So really good point. And one that, you know, Picasso, if we take Picasso, you know, we regard him as a great master. But he even spent, even in his later years, spent time copying the other great masters, still learning, still intrigued by how they achieved what they achieved. And so he would go to the gallery and work on his own version of some old master trying to unravel that mystery. And yet, you know, obviously he too was a master. I mean do Ariel, Danielle, do you have any advice that you've picked up on? I think it's been interesting hearing Danielle about your experiences, you know, with your sisters playing for a long time and feeling that you weren't necessarily getting anywhere, weren't reaching people despite playing all the time and you know, saving money, trying yeah. to record, get recorded and not knowing, not having that extra input that could have maybe steered you more speedily to the ends that you right. were going for. But at the same time, it probably stood you in good stead.
3: Well, looking back, you know, I feel like Haim, as a band, we were kind of coming up at a time when musicians were starting to just make music in their bedroom and release it and then get a record deal. And we we didn't understand that concept. You know, we again, like our favorite thing to watch as kids was this program called Behind the Music. And, you know, we would just watch our favorite bands, you know, like, oh, they played the Roxy. And there there was a guy from the record company who was just there in the audience and gave them a record deal. And, you know, I think for five years, we just thought that that was going to happen. We'd just show up at some venue. There was gonna be someone in the audience They would give us a record deal. And obviously that didn't happen. And it wasn't until, you know, I did some touring with other musicians. You know, I was in the backing band for... This guy, Michael Runyon. And then I ended up going on tour with Jenny Lewis. And from there, I ended up going on tour with Julian Casablancas from The Strokes and his solo project. And I remember trying to figure out the right time where I would get, you know, Julian kind of like was chill and I'd be like, hey, you know, I was such a huge Strokes fan. And when I first heard The Strokes, I feel like that was one of the first times, you know, I must have been 12 or 13, where I heard something. And I remember thinking part of the reason why I love. What I'm hearing is obviously the songwriting is amazing, but sonically it like sounded so cool to me and I couldn't understand why, you know, oh, it sounds old, but it sounds new and it sounds, oh wait, it sounds kind of distorted and his vocals are distorted and, and, you know, that was probably one of the first times I understood what projection was or, you know, sonics was when I first heard The Strokes. Anyway, so I remember asking Julian sometime on the road, you know, I have this band and We've been playing around and I don't know, like, how did it happen? You know, you guys sounded so good out the gate. Like, is this it? Like, holy shit. That's like the dream of. And I would, you know, I I was just, how did you get those sounds? He's like, you know what? It took us a long time to understand. And he was like literally saying what I was feeling like, oh, it's taken us so long to understand, you know, and he, I remember him saying like, it was a lot of room mics, like things that I was like, okay room mics? what what is a room okay uh you know and he gave me little tidbits and he said you know you should just stop playing like i know you guys play out a couple times a month you spend a lot of time rehearsing like you guys should really buckle down on your songwriting and your songs make sure your songs are amazing and and try to get a good recording and i took that advice and the second i got home you know that's when i got my computer and i was like all right i'm going to try and figure this out try to write more songs and And looking back, you know, I'm so happy that we spent all that time just kind of playing out to no one because when it came time, when I was at in Brighton for The Great Escape, you know, we had played so much that as a band live, we really were tight. And obviously we had so much more to learn too at that point. But it did give us a huge, a kind of a leg up live, you know. And at that time, everything kind of aligned that we had this Recording that felt fresh and cool and our songs were getting better and and the live kind of coming at this exact same moment and I really think that that really helped us so yeah, I mean advice I don't know I think for me, just listening to a lot of different music just listen like that's my favorite thing to do is just to jump in the car and like listen to shit that I've never heard and really digging and going back and that might be my advice. Yeah. Yeah, I know that was very long-winded. No,
0: no, both so. are both are valuable, I think. I think it's uh, it's really interesting. And often, sometimes, you know, bands get that moment where they're performing in front of, or potentially performing in front of the person who could give them their break and sign them up, but they've got no experience behind them. They've got no chops, for want of a better term, and that opportunity doesn't go anywhere. It isn't taken up yeah, because they, did, they're not good enough.
3: it much. did give us a... It did give us a leg up when we were at South by, you know, and there were some, you know, not saying there's no right way to do anything, mm-hmm. you know, but I feel like because there were some bands maybe that hadn't really been playing out live, but maybe caught some fire on this music that they released. But when it came time to seeing them live, maybe it was a little bit not all there. And I feel like the opposite was true to, to for us. Like we just couldn't get our sound right. But our live was, you know... We so much enjoy playing live. And so, yeah, Yeah. I don't know. It just happened differently for us. But I think it did also put such a huge emphasis on wanting to sound unique and to have a sound because we struggled with it for so long that I spend a lot of time thinking about how I want things to sound. And that kind of seeps itself into the songwriting too.
0: Yeah, and in, in effect, developing a a producer's ear as well, you know, which means that you produce your own records as well alongside yeah. these people. Ariel, do you have any advice for anybody? I'll keep it short. I mean, it
2: echoes a little bit of what Danielle was saying in the end of, it, of that exploration, which is that I don't know who I'm giving advice to, but to people who are trying to get into maybe production or songwriting or anything like that, I just think that one thing that I feel fortunate to have through there is starting it before social media was such a big thing. And so I didn't have any connection to a better version of what was just around me. You know, there was sort of this far gone idea of successful artists and stuff. But then there was just my circle of friends and the people around me and the people that I had access to. And I just didn't even, I would never try to connect the fantasy versus what was just right in front of me. And I think that social media kind of like messes with that because the fantasy is in front of you constantly and everyone you see is like doing something extraordinary. And I think that if you can just ignore all of that and just work with people who are around you, have the courage to work by yourself, whatever resources are at your disposal, just use those because I do think that, you know, there's a lot of special people out there and a lot of special people who are unrecognized. And I think if you just take the time to work with whoever you are around and with whatever resources you have available to you, which are becoming easier and easier, like Danielle said, she does a lot of work even just on her iPhone, you know, which is not, not everybody can afford an iPhone, but you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's different than a 24 track two inch studio that you save up for years to get a 10 hour workday. in. you know, you should just experiment and play around with whatever you have at your disposal until you find what it is that you have to offer and not wait for anything. is really what I'm trying to get at. Don't wait for record labels. Don't wait for some fancy producer. Don't wait for the artists that you don't have access to, whatever it is, just work with what you have. And sooner than later, you'll find whether or not it is what you love. And if it is what you love, you'll find the right chemistry with somebody who is within your reach.
0: Yeah. That is very sound advice. Um, thank you so much to all three of you, to Ariel and Danielle and to Rostam for taking the time, for sharing such uh, revelatory recordings. It's been really exciting. Um, and I uh, you know I love the stories that you've been telling us and whether you can tell them or not. You know, that's always really exciting um, when we feel as if you're allowing us into your world. And you really have. And, and we've got a little window into this uh, amazing musical community that you were part of um and we will play another selection from the album a, an outro track do you think we should hear summer girl having started the conversation with summer sure. girl
3: there we go and it is the closing the track th- on the album the as song well. that started it all will end it yeah all.
0: yeah <laughs> excellent um thanks again really appreciate yeah, it yeah
3: of course thank you for having us on
0: it's a real pleasure and here is summer girl then this is Haïm from women in music part three Uh, Thank you all. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you have a moment, do tell your friends and leave us a review. It all really helps. Thanks to those of you who have already donated to the show. I'm just one part of the team that brings you Tape Notes. It relies on your support. If you'd like to donate, please head to our website. To ask a question on a future episode or find out who's coming up, head to our socials and on Instagram you can see pictures from the recording sessions for each episode of Take Notes. Thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. So
1: hard to reach. Your smiles turn into crying. It's the same release And you always know And you always know